Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Welcome to the Casting Across Fly Fishing Podcast. I'm Matthew of castingacross.com, where I explore the quarry and culture of fly fishing. Today we are going to cover a lot of ground. It's going to be at a kind of a 10,000 foot perspective looking down on an issue that impacts fly fishing very specifically, but it also touches on conservation, ethics, and even some, some bigger questions. But they all get back to what fish are in your streams. So I'll talk about the fly fishing side of it first and then kind of work into the conservation and then the ethics and even some worldview implications. And so bear with me. We're going to be going kind of quickly. We're going to really just be glancing off a number of subjects and topics. And that being said, my encouragement to you would be that you delve into these things deeper if you have questions, if you really say, I disagree with you. Or I would even say more so, if you really agree with me, to go back, do your own research, do some digging, read the articles I'm going to mention, check into some resources that have to do with invasive species. And that's what we're talking about. First of all, what's an invasive species? Invasive species is a species that is not native to a particular area. How does it get there? It gets there in any number of ways. The first would be natural causes. So this would be migration. A species moves from point A to point B because of some environmental factor. It could be drought. It could be temperature change. It could even just be pursuing more resources such as food or land to accommodate needs that, that include everything from those resources being depleted where they previously existed all the way up to expanding populations. So you have a migration or of species into a new area that they had not been before, at least not within our awareness, and thus they are seen as invasive. There's also an 
unnatural, which there's a lot of irony there, uh, but we'll get to that later. Uh, unnatural invasive species uh, come in when they are introduced by people. Of course, this assumes that people are not part of the natural world, which is quite bizarre from really any and every worldview, whether it be theistic, whether it be evolutionary, uh, to take people out of the natural world and say that they are unnatural is uh, a little bit uh, ridiculous. That being said, I get what people are trying to say, that uh, cats don't get in boats of their own volition and get to an island where there are birds that nest in the ground so that the cats easily eat them and they are unable to care for their young and now you have an extinct bird. We'll talk about that actually in a moment. It is on my things to get to. So both of these issues are problematic in some sense because at the end of the day, regardless of how things get there from very natural causes, migration, uh, or unnatural causes being put there on purpose or inadvertently by humans, now there is a species that is not supposed to be there. So let's talk about, from a fly fishing perspective, what is maybe the most key issue for folks fishing in the United States. It is trout species that are taken from one location and put into another location. And I think the two biggest examples, I know there's there's small examples that are definitely uh, a, a big deal because those small examples are maybe one particular strain of cutthroat trout that is now being crossbred with rainbow trout or another strain of cutthroat trout that is being brought in from an, an invasive standpoint being introduced by people because they have the best of intentions to bolster the fish populations in the stream, but now you have a genetically pure or as close to genetically pure population that that you could get or that you're aware of is now being tainted and being damaged and consequently being made functionally extinct by the introduction of new genetics. That's a big deal from a conservation perspective, simply from an appreciation of heritage fish species perspective, uh, that we're doing something artificially that may, depending on your perspective or, or, or your, your paradigm, that might happen eventually, but we are uh, making that happen more rapidly, and in doing so, we're messing with stuff. So the those small incidents of trout populations being altered by human interaction through the introduction of other trout populations is a big deal on those small scale. But simply for the, the sake of conversation, the most notable ones are brown trout being put over brook trout in the East Coast and brook trout being put over species such as cutthroat trout on the Rocky Mountains and, and down into the valleys. Simply for the sake of like a primer on this, and I do have a podcast from almost two, three years ago. It's in like the, the tens or, or the twenties. Uh, if you, you scroll down in your feed, I talk about uh, native wild and stocked fish. It's called uh, Native Wild Stocked McDonald's, I believe is the, the name of the, the podcast, where I talk for about 25 minutes simply on those designations of what those different labels mean for fish. So real quick, and there may be some people who have a difference of opinion, but it comes down to this. A native fish is a fish that has been there as long as we are aware that fish have been there. 
this includes a lot of presuppositions. This includes a lot of biases. But when it comes down to it, it's you know this is a brook trout that swims in a main river. And as long as we're aware, as long as the people that we have talked to have been aware, there's brook trout that have been swimming in these waters. All of, of our scientific and historical data from the relatively recent centuries and, and even millennia show that there's been brook trout here. Okay, that is native. Wild is a similar stream, uh, say a stream, a spring creek in Pennsylvania, where brown trout were introduced in the 19th century. And this is irrespective of what they've done to the native species, but they have become a part of that ecosystem such that they have been reproducing naturally for a number of fish generations, which happens relatively rapidly. Uh, but those fish are stream bred. They are wild, which of course stands in opposition to or contradiction to a fish that is placed there as an adult fish, you know, eight to 10 inches, or a fingerling fish, two to three inches. Or you could even say, and this is where the lines get a little bit blurred, that was placed in there as an egg. There's not a lot of stocking that's done that way um, on the grand scale. But those fish were raised, were, were first of all produced through significant genetic manipulation um, by, by selecting certain traits and, you know, different stocking programs, whether it be federal or state or even local stocking programs do this differently. But especially for a larger and more adult and older fish, that fish lived its life in a concrete raceway. And it also doesn't have those characteristics and qualities. Again, this is a broad brush statement that are going to give it the same sort of uh, coloration, uh, f flavor of flesh if you were to harvest that fish, or even adaptability and sensibilities as a stream bred and certainly as a native fish. So that's the difference between native, wild, and stream bred. All of this is to say that you can have a rainbow trout that is an invasive species if it is on the east side of the Rocky Mountains. You can have a brook trout. You, you, you will have brook trout that are invasive species if they are in the Rocky Mountains. And of course, you have brown trout and you have rainbow trout, but specifically brown trout are more problematic on the east coast. And the reason why you have rainbows on the east side of the Rocky Mountains that are problematic and brook trout that are high up in the Rocky Mountains that are problematic and brown trout that are in the East Coast brook trout fisheries that are problematic is two main reasons. One, well, three main reasons, actually. One, simply it's competition. It's another fish that is vying for resources. Secondly, it is a fish that may predate on other trout species. So you have a fish like a brown trout that it gets very pisivorous. It feeds on fish after it gets to a certain size and age. And of course, we've all caught uh, pretty small fish on streamers. And so we know this happens. And brown trout are particularly vicious when it comes uh, to, to this. But then you also have fish that are competing on spawning grounds. And so you have a larger, more aggressive fish. And we've all seen fish that are territorial. And when they get on a good quality red, they will chase other fish off and will even go so far as disturb any attempts at building reds. But then you even go a step further, and this is much more of an issue with fish like rainbows and cutthroats that are more genetically similar than browns and brookies. So those everything I mentioned before, 
is a specific issue with brown trout and brook trout on the on the east coast um they spawn both in the fall and uh they but they don't and they compete for resources but they don't have as much genetic similarity that being said we all have seen pictures of and potentially even encountered tiger trout where you can have um, some crossbreeding happening between browns and brookies but it is not as uh, likely to happen as what you have when rainbow trout and cutthroat trout crossbreed and in doing so you have an invasive introduced rainbow trout on say the east slope of the rocky mountains that is now damaging the genetic material and makeup of a strain or of uh, our population of cutthroat trout which that is where we have our magnifying glasses because research has come so far even in the last generation but certainly in the last century to the diversity of the different watersheds on the Rocky Mountains, on the East Slope, and up, and even in in the higher higher elevations, the diversity of populations of cutthroat trout, where it is not a homogenized unilateral population all the way up and down the mountain range, and I think something that we probably are going to have more awareness of as the the research and the technology increases is that we might see some similarities with brook trout in the East Coast. Uh, you are finding in some circles this is being spoken of and i think that we we can't deny that that's also going to be the reality that we might say you know what there are some strains of brook trout that have been lost either because of stocking so you even have in in this situation the same species but because a strain or a line or population of fish was stocked over with fish that were not from that area. So brook trout that were, say, not from Georgia were being brought into Georgia from a hatchery in North Carolina. Now you have a strain that is no longer uh, regionally uh, distinct from other fish. So here we are, 10 minutes in. Why does this matter? What does this have to do with fly fishing? Well, fly fishing is dependent, wholly dependent on conservation. You have two types of fly fishing that you can engage in. You have put-and-take style fly fishing where you are content to go out and catch a fish that has been placed in there any time in recent history all the way to a native fish because all you're looking for is the experience and maybe even something to put on the table. And there's nothing wrong with that. I actually welcome that. I have no problem with the blood sport, food-based aspect of fishing. I think it is good. I think it is healthy. I think it is what we and fish were designed to do for them to be there for us to eat, but to do so with stewardship. But because of some of the the negative decisions that have been made by people, not just in the United States, but all over the world, especially in the last few hundred years, but certainly going back further than that, we are at a place where that is just not a sustainable practice in many of the premium premier fisheries that we would like to go and catch a big fat trout to put on our plate. They, the spring creeks of Pennsylvania, the popular rivers out west, uh, rivers in the Adirondacks, some of the, the trout streams down in southern Appalachia, they just can't sustain people catching their limit of fish. And while invasive species introduced species whether it be trout or something like smallmouth bass and again you know we focus really just on trout being on top of trout but so many other fish can factor in on this and even trout on top of other fish i mean there's so many fish that are ugly that are of very little table fare value um, that are certainly not of sporting value that 
non-native trout have pushed out. I mean, tiny little darters and, and you know, little finger-long fish that are part of an ecosystem that somehow, in some way, even if we're not fully aware of it, factor into the stasis of that ecosystem have been pushed out because something like a brown trout or a brook trout uh, or a smallmouth bass has been placed in that ecosystem. You know, it's easy to point at those jumping silver carp in the, the Mississippi and say, oh, that's terrible because look what's happening. But in many other ways, other species do the exact same thing. Smallmouth bass, pike, uh, snakehead, uh, you name it. There's fish that enter, uh, blue catfish. I mean, there's fish that change ecosystems. Thankfully, nature is very elastic and it adapts relatively quickly, but it's still an issue. That being said, there's plenty of other things that we've done to the environment that have caused issues that have led to these fisheries not being as sustainable without human interaction, whether it be dams, whether it be agricultural practices that we now realize are not great mining practices, uh, just development, things like that. That has led to the perceived need to stock fish on top of other fish, uh, fish that grow quickly, fish that are relatively inexpensive to raise, and so they are put on top of other fish. So the question is, how do we think about it and what do we do about it? So there's been efforts that have been taken in places like Yellowstone to get rid of lake trout uh, because of their competition with the native cutthroat. And they are significant expenses. But the question on the table is, do we undertake this now where those remnant native populations are still redeemable? Or do we say, you know what, this is now, because of our influence, the way that it is. Are these fish, are they part of the population now? You know, you look at some of these spring creeks in south central Pennsylvania that I absolutely love. I'm looking at a, a map of, of the Latorte right now, and it's filled with brown trout. Falling Springs is filled with rainbow trout. Those would have originally been you know, pre-industrialization filled with brook trout, and we have records of them being filled with brook trout. But do you go through using some sort of chemical or other agent to get rid of all those fish that are in there? That's the question that we have to ask ourselves. And if so, what are the implications? If not, what are the, the implications and what does that say about our conservation? These are things that I think the angler needs to be at least aware of. But part of the reason that I'm bringing this up is because I read an article on Vox. Now, I'm not a Vox reader, but uh, the headline, it's time to stop demonizing, quote, invasive, unquote, species. Uh, grabbed me. And there's a picture of a dark unicorn snail, which uh, they're these invasive uh, snails in California that kill native species by boring a hole into them and sucking out their guts, which, I mean, if you're going to demonize something, that's the thing to demonize. But the, the, the premise of this article, and I would, I would encourage you to check it out. Uh, again, vox.com. Um, I'm certainly not vouching for the rest of the content on the website, but this is an interesting take um, because uh, the, the, the premise is because of man-made climate change, which I'm not going to discuss at length or really at all here, uh, that these species have no other choice but to move and consequently be put in to conflict with native species. And there's a number of examples that are given here. But I think the most profound thing that I took away from this article is that contemporary critical theory, which again, I'm certainly not going to go into in much detail here, is being applied to this question in, in a way that says that prejudices against race mixing and immigration are actually driving the scientific paradigms for 
thinking about invasive species. To that, I say, well, it's just utter nonsense. If I have property in Florida, I'm not going to feel guilty or prejudicial or if I'm acting as a supremacist, if I kill the Burmese pythons that I find on my property. I'm not going to feel bad if I live in Arkansas and the wild pigs that are destroying my farm, if I systemically eliminate them as quickly as possible. That has nothing to do with my thoughts on gender or colonization or race or anything like that. If anything, I think that this article, although it raises some good points, the, the, the conclusions that it comes to and some of these what I consider to be far-flung accusations simply obfuscate the bigger issue, which is how do we make that decision that I talked about earlier, which is which issues do we try to remediate and which ones do we say, you know what? The snakeheads actually have not eaten every largemouth bass in the Potomac River, so I think they're okay. But you know what? These zebra mussels are causing havoc in the Great Lakes. What do we do to reduce? It's probably impossible to eliminate, but what do we do to reduce their numbers? That's nothing anti-zebra mussel-ist or anything like that, except for the fact that these tiny little creatures are dangerous and damaging, and there is no moral exchange there outside from the awareness that we messed up when we allowed them to get into this ecosystem, and now we have some sort of culpability to deal with it. But they're just little muscles. All right. Well, again, this was kind of all over the place. Hopefully you see that line of being aware of, you know, quality fly fishing comes from healthy ecosystems. Healthy ecosystems come from stable ecosystems. Stable ecosystems, generally speaking, include animals, specifically fish, that have been there for a long, long period of time. And when that stasis gets thrown out of whack, Anglers, as people who use and steward those environmental resources, have an obligation, not just as anglers, but as humans who have been put here to take care of creation. We have an obligation to say, what can we do? What is reasonable? Without nuking something, without dredging the bottom of, of something, what can we do to try to get things to where they're stable and we protect all of the variables that we possibly can to ensure that this is something healthier moving forward. So two challenges. Uh, the first one is uh, look into stuff that I mentioned. I mentioned like five or six different concepts in here. Uh, check them out. If this is something that interests you, there's so many resources out there. There's some really cool resources from non-fly fishing sources. Obviously, you pick up your, your Trout Unlimited magazine, you hop on the, the internet and, and read a blog from some conservation organization, and you're going to find some very trout and fly fishing focused conservation information about uh, invasive species. But it's really cool to also get it from just like a purely academic standpoint or someone who's who's simply concerned with promoting the pr protection of a watershed. They care about a lot more, and so you, you get to have a new appreciation for how trout or the insects that trout eat or the animals that predate on trout, how they all work in a, in a symbiotic manner. And so I, I would encourage you to check that out. Secondly, become familiar with your watershed. What 
is supposed to be there. Maybe what's gone, what's been extirpated, what is now extinct. There's so many things that we, we don't even realize that aren't there, whether they be insects, whether they be smaller fish, whether they be plant species. Uh, get to be aware of that. I, I, I find that really interesting uh, simply because it shows what has transpired in the past as a little bit of a cautionary tale, but it's also kind of a neat historical look at, you know what, this is where things used to be. What is different now than then? And from a purely curiosity's perspective, I think there's value there. So different episode, right? If you have any questions, if you have any accusations, if you want me to explore anything else or you want me to uh, touch on something in an article or whatever, feel free to let me know. Matthew at castingacross.com. Happy to engage and interact. This week on the website, the first article is called Interview Rethinking Waiters. I spoke to somebody at Frog Togs. Now, Frog Togs is not, I think, in the top handful of waiter manufacturers for fly fishing but what they do do well is have a foot to pardon the pun squarely in the fishing and in the hunting uh, spaces and so i talked to them about buying one pair of waders. If you're somebody who is duck hunting and fly fishing, if you are going to be uh, doing other water activities, how do you find one pair of waders? What is there to look for that might not be in the fly fishing world? So it was a good conversation. I was curious just as somebody getting more into waterfowl hunting and also realizing that, you know, having multiple pairs of waders is kind of a luxury. So is there something that can be done? Uh, Stay tuned for a quick final word about frog togs here at the end of the podcast. My article that came out on Wednesday was called Heroes of Fly Fishing Stories. Uh, Heroes of Fly Fishing Stories. If you think about a good fly fishing story, the person that is the protagonist is not that different than you. And if it's any consolation, the protagonist doesn't usually catch a ton of big fish, but they have, whether it be the author or what the author is projecting onto this character, uh, has observational skills and they have circumstances they're able to communicate in a compelling way. And with a little bit of practice and simply with a couple of gifts, then that can be us also. So just a way to think about fly fishing stories. This week's recommendation on the Casting Across Fly Fishing podcast is that you check out Frog Togs. Frog Togs has right now the only pair of waders that have a removable insulated insert. Uh, I have never used them before. I am simply intrigued by them. Uh, As someone who has done a lot of steelhead fishing and a lot of fishing in tailwaters, uh, I think those two situations would really warrant a breathable, insulated, removable layer, uh, especially if you do only want one pair of waders. So definitely check it out, frogtogs.com. They have a couple different models, but it's just a unique concept. Inevitably, somebody else is going to do it, but as far as I'm aware, they're the only ones that have the right now. So I will put a link to a pair of their breathable waders with a removable insulated liner on the show notes to this page on castingacross.com. Thanks for listening to the Casting Across Fly Fishing Podcast. Please subscribe in your favorite podcast app and rate the podcast on iTunes. Then head over to castingacross.com for three posts a week on the people, places, and things that go into the pursuit of fish. Mm-hmm.